I am reading from an ebook that is available at Amazon.com called Can We Trust the Scriptures? Irrefutable Proof that the Scriptures are Trustworthy by Dr. Ronnie D. Thomason. Ronnie D. Thomason was born in Amarillo, Texas in 1950 and graduated from Paladuro High School in 1968 and West Texas State University, now West Texas A&M, in 1972 with a bachelor's degree in education. Born again at 12, he began his preaching ministry at age 16. At 21, he began to pastor churches in White Deer, Rockwall, Amarillo, Texas, Broken Bow, Nebraska, and he moved to Jacksonville, Florida in 1995 and is the founder and pastor of Cornerstone Church. He received a Master's of Religious Education in 1998 and a Doctor of Theology in 1999, both from Jacksonville Theological Seminary. He serves on boards for churches, Bible colleges, and missions organizations, and travels throughout the world speaking in churches, colleges, and conducting seminars and mass meetings. He is married with grown children, 12 grandchildren, four great-grandchildren, and he and his wife Ruth presently live in Jacksonville, Florida. Introduction The Scriptures Can We Trust Them? This book will examine the Scripture's trustworthiness and reliability. This is of great importance amid the constant attack that they come under by those who would attempt to relegate Scripture to mythology, poetry, or allegory. The Bible, being the greatest book ever compiled and read by millions over the centuries, is being given a bad rap by those in rebellion to God. Since our eternal well-being is dependent upon the veracity of the Scriptures, it is healthy to review from time to time why we can trust them to be fully the Word of God. This study will be in four parts. First, we will look at the Scriptures from the angle of historical correctness. Secondly, we will examine the archaeological record concerning the Scriptures. Thirdly, we will look at the testimony of Jesus Christ concerning the Scriptures. And lastly, we will see what some of the world's greatest, since Christ, outside of the clerical profession, have to say in defense of the Scriptures. This will be an oversimplification of the whole scope of these exhausted fields of study, but hopefully we can present a useful layman's look at this interesting subject. Chapter 1 we can trust the scriptures because they are historically accurate. Historiography, the study of history, is based upon three basic principles. According to C. Sanders in Introduction to Research in English Literary History, they are the bibliographical test, or the bibliographical test, the internal evidence test, and the external evidence test. The bibliographical test is an examination of the textual transmission by which documents reach us. In other words, not having the original documents 
How reliable are the copies we have in regards to the number of manuscripts and the time interval between the original and extant copy? To demonstrate how the scriptures pass the bibliographical test, we will quote from several scholars who have testified concerning the manuscripts and their transmission to us over the passing of time. Concerning the New Testament manuscripts, F.F. Bruce writes, it cannot be too strongly asserted that in substance the text of the Bible is certain, especially is this the case with the New Testament. The number of manuscripts of the New Testament, of early translations from it, and of quotations from it in the oldest writers of the church is so large that it is practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved in some one or other of these ancient authorities. This can be said of no other ancient book in the world. Scholars are satisfied that they possess substantially the true text of the principal Greek and Roman. Writers whose works come down to us, of Sophocles, of Thucydides, of Cicero, of Virgil, yet our knowledge of their writings depends on a mere handful of manuscripts, whereas the manuscripts of the New Testament are counted by hundreds and even thousands. Burnett Streeter believes that because of the great quantity of textual material for the New Testament, the degree of security that the text has been handed down to us in a reliable form is prima facie very high. Frederick G. Kenyon says it is reassuring at the end to find that the general result of all these discoveries of manuscripts and all this study is to strengthen the proof of the authenticity of the scriptures and our conviction that we have in our hands the substantial integrity, the veritable Word of God. Kenyon, who is the director and principal librarian of the British Museum and an authority on the manuscripts also says, besides number, the manuscripts of the New Testament differ from those of the classical authors and this time the difference is clear gain. In no other case is the interval of time between the composition of the book and the date of the earliest extant manuscripts so short as in that of the New Testament. The books of the New Testament were written in the latter part of the first century. The earliest extant manuscripts are of the fourth century, say from 250 to 300 years later. This may, may sound like a considerable interval, but it is nothing to that which parts most of the great classical authors from their earliest manuscripts. We believe that we have all the essentials in an accurate text of the seven extant plays of Sophocles. Yet the earliest substantial manuscript upon which it is based was written more than 1400 years after the poet's death. The interval between the dates of the scriptural manuscript, original composition, and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be in fact negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. 
both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. What I've given here is only a small sampling of the scholarly testimony available to support the fact that the scriptures have been accurately passed down to us through ample supply of manuscripts available. There are some 8,000 manuscripts of the Latin Vulgate and at least 1,000 for the er other earlier versions. Add over 5,000 Greek manuscripts and we have over 14,000 manuscript copies of the New Testament scriptures alone, not counting manuscripts of the Old Testament scriptures. This does not even take into account the 350 Dead Sea Scrolls. We can safely conclude that the New Testament scriptures pass the bibliographical test for historical accuracy. Now concerning the Old Testament manuscripts, Robert Wilson states in his book, A Scientific Investigation of the Old Testament, in 144 cases of transliteration from Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, and Moabite into Hebrew, and in 40 cases of the opposite, or 184 in all, the evidence shows that for 2300 to 3900 years, the text of the proper names in the Hebrew Bible has been transmitted with the most minute accuracy. That the original scribes should have written them with such close conformity to correct philological principles is a wonderful proof of their thorough care and scholarship. Further, that the Hebrew text should have been transmitted by copyists through so many centuries is a phenomenon unequaled in the history of literature. There are about 40 of these kings living from 2000 BC to 400 BC. Each appears in chronological order with reference to the kings of the same country with the respect to the kings of other countries. No stronger evidence for substantial accuracy of the Old Testament records could possibly be imagined than this collection of kings. Mathematically, it is one chance in 750 followed by 18 zeros that this accuracy is mere circumstance. The proof that the copies of the original documents have been handed down with substantial correctness for more than 2,000 years cannot be denied. That the copies in existence 2,000 years ago had been in like manner handed down from the originals is not merely possible, but as we have shown, it is rendered probable by the analogies of Biblionian documents now existing of which we have both originals and copies thousands of years apart, and of scores of papyri which, when compared to other modern editions of the classics, that only minor changes of the text have taken place in more than 2,000 years, and especially by the scientific and demonstrable accuracy with which the proper spelling of the names of kings and of the numerous foreign uh, tens embedded in the Hebrew text has been transmitted to us. This quotation from just one of many biblical scholars echoes the general consensus that even though there are not as many Old Testament manuscripts available as the New Testament, 
we still have enough evidence to substantiate the claim that the Old Testament passes the biographical test for historical accuracy. Chapter 2, the internal evidence test for historical accuracy. The earliest preachers of the gospel knew the values of first-hand testimony and appealed to it time and again. Quote, we are witnesses of these things, end quote, was their constant and confident assertion. And it can have been by no means so easy as some writers seem to think to invent words and deeds of Jesus in those early years when so many of his disciples were about, who could remember what had and had not happened. Indeed, the evidence is that the early Christians were careful to distinguish between the sayings of Jesus and their own inferences or judgments. Paul, for example, when discussing the vexed questions of uh, marriage and divorce in 1 Corinthians 7, is careful to make this distinction between his own advice on the subject and the Lord's decisive ruling. He actually said, quote, I, not the Lord, end quote, and again, quote, not I, but the Lord, end quote. And it was not only friendly eyewitnesses that the early preachers had to reckon with, there were other less well-disposed who were also conversant with the main facts of the ministry and death of Jesus. The disciples could not afford to risk inaccuracies, not to speak of willful manipulation of the facts, which would at once be exposed by those who would be only too glad to do so. On the contrary, one of the strong points in the original apostolic preaching is the confident appeal to the knowledge of the hearers that they not only said, quote, we are witnesses of these things, end quote, but also, quote, as you yourselves also know, end quote, Acts 2.22. Had there been any tendency to depart from the facts in any material respect, the possible presence of hostile witnesses in the audience would have served as a further connective. This preceding argument by F.F. Bruce underscores the historic validity of using the scriptures themselves as a primary source of evidence to their accuracy, because of their being written during times when the people who would read them were still around to judge their fruitfulness. Number three, the external evidence test. There were many authors who wrote concerning the reliability of scriptures over the centuries. Their writings give credence to the scriptures through the historic setting of their own times. These highly respected and influential writers had much to say about the scriptures. Ignatius, who lived in 70 AD to 110 AD, was bishop of Antioch and was martyred for his faith in Christ. He knew all the apostles and was in the action group, in other words, a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the apostle John. Ignatius gave in credence to the scripture by the way he based his faith on the accuracy of the Bible. He had ample material and witnesses to discover scriptural trustworthiness. Polycarp, who lived A.D. 70 to 157 A.D., 
was a disciple of John and succumbed to martyrdom at 86 years of age because of his relentless devotion to Christ and the scriptures. Polycarp's death demonstrated his trust in the accuracy of the scripture. About 155 in the reign of Antonius Pius, when a local persecution was taking place in Smyrna and several of his members had been martyred, he was singled out as the leader of the church and marked for martyrdom. When asked to recant and live, he is reputed to have said, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he hath done me no wrong. How can I speak evil of my king who saved me? He was burned at the stake, dying a heroic martyr for his faith. He certainly had ample context to know the truth. The Jewish historian Flavius Josephus Writing about the death of John the Baptist gives no grounds for Christian manipulation of his writings. In this passage we read, quote, Now some of the Jews thought that Herod's army had been destroyed by God, and that it was very just penalty to avenge John, surnamed the Baptist. For Herod had killed him. Though he was a good man who bade the Jews to practice virtue, be just one to another and pious toward God, and come together in baptism. He taught that baptism was acceptable to God, provided that they underwent it, not to procure remission of certain sins, but for the purification of the body, if the soul had already been purified by righteousness. And when the others gathered around him, for they were greatly moved when they heard his words, Herod feared that his persuasive power over men being so great might lead to a rising as they seemed ready to follow his counsel in everything. So he thought it much better to seize him and kill him before he caused any tumult than to have to repent of falling into such trouble later on after a revolt had taken place. Because of this suspicion of Herod, John was sent in chains to Macharius, the fortress which was mentioned above, and there put to death. The Jews believed that it was to avenge him that this disaster fell upon the army God wishing to bring evil upon Herod. The significance of these external writings of contemporaries of the writers of Scripture gives credence to their validity and truthfulness. The points of view of these external witnesses may be slightly different from that of the closer, those closer to the events written about in the Gospels, but they do not in any way contradict or conflict what is written in the Scriptures. Therefore, we can say that the scriptures pass the external evidence test for historical accuracy. We can trust the scriptures because of the archaeological record. It is reasonable to assume that as more and more of the historic sites of biblical importance are discovered and excavated, and that as physical evidence uncovered is examined scientifically, the scriptures should be either vindicated or discounted. What has happened in the scientific community and among archaeologists, archaeologists is that no amount of discoveries have refuted any scripture. But they have all supported and confirmed the scriptural accounts of biblical history. We will first give some quotations that represent the views of the archaeological community concerning the accuracy of scripture from their archaeology findings. Then we will look at some of the evidence itself. Nelson Gluck, the Jewish archaeologist, 
wrote, quote, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. The almost incredibly accurate historical account of the Bible, and particularly so when it is fortified by archaeological fact. William F. Albright, known as one of the great archaeologists, states, there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament tradition. The excessive skepticism shown toward the Bible by important historical schools of the 18th and 19th centuries, certain phases of which still appear periodically, has been progressively discredited. Discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of innumerable details and has brought increased recognition to the value of the Bible as a source of history. Frederick Kenyon says, It is therefore legitimate to say that in respect of that part of the Old Testament against which the disintegrating criticism of the last half of the 19th century was chiefly directed, the evidence of archaeology has been to re-establish its authority and likewise to augment its value by rendering it more intelligible through a fuller knowledge of its background and setting. Archaeology has not yet said its last word, but the results already achieved confirm what faith would suggest, that the Bible can do nothing but gain from an increase of knowledge. Millar Burroughs of Yale University observed, Archaeology has in many cases refuted the views of modern critics. It has shown in a number of instances that these views rest on false assumptions and unreal artificial schemes of historical development. This is a real contribution and not to be minimized. The excessive skepticism of many liberal theologians stems not from a careful evaluation of the available data, but from an enormous predisposition against the supernatural. On the whole, however, archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened confidence in the reliability of the scriptural record. More than one archaeologist has found his respect for the Bible increased by the experience of excavation in Palestine. On the whole, such evidence as archaeology has afforded thus far, especially by providing additional and older manuscripts of the books of the Bible, strengthens our confidence in the accuracy with which the text has been transmitted through the centuries. William Albright says concerning the book of Genesis, until recently it was the fashion among biblical historians to treat the patriarchal sagas of Genesis as though they were artificial creations of Israelite scribes of the divided monarchy or tales told by imaginative rhapsodists around Israelite campfires during the centuries following their occupation of the country. Eminent names among scholars can be cited for regarding every item of Genesis as reflecting late invention or at least retrojection of events and conditions under the monarchy into the remote past, about which nothing was thought to have been really known to the writers of later days. Now it has all been changed, says Albright. Archaeological discoveries since 1925 have changed all this. 
Aside from a few diehards among older scholars, there is scarcely a single biblical historian who has not been impressed by the rapid accumulation of data supporting the substantial historicity of patriarchal tradition. According to the traditions of Genesis, the ancestors of Israel were closely related to the semi-nomadic peoples of Transjordan, Syria, the Euphrates Basin, and North Arabia in the last centuries of the second millennium BC and the first centuries of the first millennium. Now, let's look at some examples of Old Testament archaeological confirmation. First of all, concerning the Genesis account, the ancestry of Israel from Mesopotamia, archaeologists have found support for this fact. Both the Bible and the archaeological research traces the movement of these people out of the land of Mesopotamia. William Albright says that it is beyond reasonable doubt that Hebrew tradition was connect in tracing the patriarchs directly back to the Balik Valley in northwestern Mesopotamia. Concerning the biblical account of the origins of languages, the whole earth was of one language and one speech, according to Genesis 11.1, before the Tower of Babel. After the building of the tower and its destruction, God confounded the language of the earth, Genesis 11.9. Many modern-day philologists attest to the likelihood of such an origin from the world's languages. Alfredo Trombetti says he can trace and prove the common origin of all languages. Max Mueller also attests to the common origin. And Otto Jesperson goes so far as to say that language was directly given to the first men by God. During the excavations of Jericho in 1930 to 1936, Garstang found something so startling that a statement of what they found was prepared and signed by himself and two other members of the team. In reference to these findings, Garstang says, As to the main fact, then, there remains no doubt. The walls fell outwards so completely that the attackers would be able to clamber up and over their ruins into the city. Why so unusual? Because the walls of city do not fall outwards, they fall inwards. And yet in Joshua 6.20 we hear that the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. The walls were made to fall outward. New Testament example of archaeological confirmations of Scripture in regard to the authenticity of the, the, of the book of Luke. Sir William Ramsey is regarded as one of the greatest archaeologists ever to have lived. He was trained in the German historical school of the mid-19th century, and as a result, he was taught that the book of Acts was a product of the mid-2nd century A.D. He was firmly convinced of this belief and set out to prove this teaching. However, he was compelled to a complete reversal of his beliefs due to the overwhelming evidence uncovered in his research. He spoke of this when he said, I may fairly claim to have entered on this investigation without prejudice in favor of the conclusion which I shall now seek to justify to the reader. On the contrary, I began with a mind unfavorable to it. 
for the ingenuity and apparent completeness of the tubingen theory had at one time quite convinced me. It did not then lie in my line of life to investigate the subject minutely. But more recently I found myself brought into contact with the Book of Acts as an authority for the topography, antiquities, and society of Asia Minor. It was gradually borne upon me that in various details the narrative showed marvelous truth. In fact, beginning with a fixed idea that the work was essentially a second century composition and never relying on its evidence as trustworthy, for the first century conditions I gradually came to find it a useful ally in some obscure and difficult investigations. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense. He fixes his mind on the idea and plans that rules in the evolution of history and proportions the scale of this treatment to the importance of each incident. He seizes the important and critical events and shows their true nature a greater length. While he touches lightly or omits entirely much of that was valueless for his purpose. In short, this author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. It was at one time conceded that Luke had entirely missed the boat in the events he portrayed as surrounding the birth of Jesus. They argued that there was no census, that Quirinius was not governor of Syria and that, at that time, and that everyone did not have to return to his ancestral home. First of all, archaeological discoveries proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Romans had a regular enrollment of taxpayers and also held census every 14 years. This procedure was indeed begun under Augustus and the first took place in either 23-22 BC or in 9 and 8 BC. The latter would be the one to which Luke refers. Secondly, we find evidence that Quirinius was governor not of Syria, or actually was governor of Syria around 7 BC. This assumption is based on an inscription found in Antioch ascribing to Quirinius this post. As a result of this finding, it is now supposed that he was governor twice, once in 7 BC and the other time in 6 AD, the date ascribed by Josephus. And lastly, in regard to the practices of enrollment, a papyrus found in Egypt gives directions for the conduct of a census. It reads, because of the approaching census, it is necessary that all those residing for any cause away from their home should at once prepare to return to their own governments in order that they may complete the family registration of the enrollment and that the tilled lands may retain those belonging to them. Archaeologists at first believed Luke's implication wrong, that Lystra and Derby were in Lyconia and Iconium was not, Acts 14.6. They based their belief on the writings of Romans, such as Cicero, who indicated that Iconium was in Lyconia. Thus, archaeologists said the book of Acts was unreliable. However, in 1910, Sir William Ramsey found a monument that showed that Iconium was a Phrygian city 
Later discoveries confirmed this. We can see from these examples which represent what happens when archaeology catches up with the scriptures that our scriptures are only being confirmed and supported by each new archaeological discovery. Now let's look at Jesus in the scriptures. The life and teachings of Jesus Christ of Nazareth are the greatest proof of the reliability of the scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament contains several hundred references to the coming Messiah that were totally fulfilled in Christ as recorded in the New Testament. These fulfilled prophecies concerning the Messiah, along with the eyewitness accounts of his resurrection from the dead, are two areas used by the apostles to establish his Messiahship. Not only do they accomplish that task solidly, but the same also establish the reliability of the scriptures as the word of God. And for our purpose here, we will look at just a sampling of the over 300 Old Testament references to the Messiah that were fulfilled in Jesus. Some have argued that the prophecies were written at or after the time of Jesus and therefore fulfilled themselves. The truth is that the historic data for the completion of the Old Testament has been set by scholars at 450 BC. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, was completed in the reign of Ptolemy Philadelphus, 285 to 246 BC. It is rather obvious that if you have a Greek translation in 250 BC, then you had to have the Hebrew text from which it was written in 250 BC. This will suffice to indicate that there was at least a 250 year gap between the prophecies being written down and their fulfillment in the person of Christ. Here are a few examples of Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ. One is the prophecy of the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The fulfillment of this was Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Matthew 1.20, But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. The second prophecy was that he would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The prophecy was fulfilled, Matthew 1:18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was the spouse of Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Matthew 1.24, Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Luke 1.27, To a virgin, a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Luke 1.28, And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. 
Blessed art thou among women. Luke 1, 29, And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. Luke 1, 30, The angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Luke 1.34, Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold thy cousin Elizabeth, she has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. Luke one thirty seven. For with God nothing shall be impossible. Then there's a prophecy concerning him being the Son of God. Psalm, 20, Psalm 2, verse 7, I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. The fulfillment was Matthew 3:17, and a voice from heaven saying, "This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." Then there's the prophecy of the seed of Abraham, Genesis 22:18, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. This prophecy was fulfilled in Matthew, the book of generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Galatians 3.16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Then there's the prophecy concerning the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. This was fulfilled in Luke 3:33, which was the son of Abinadab, which was the son of Amram, which was the son of Ezram, which was the son of Phares, which was the son of Judah, which was the son of Jacob, which was the son of Isaac, which was the son of Abraham, which was the son of Therah, which was the son of Nacor. Abraham beget Isaac, and Isaac beget Jacob, Jacob beget Judas his brethren, Hebrews 7:14. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, which of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. Then there's the prophecy of him being born in Bethlehem. Mark 5.2, or Micah 5.2, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler of Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. And this prophecy was fulfilled in Matthew 2.1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Then there's a prophecy that he was crucified with thieves. Isaiah 53.12, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This was fulfilled in Matthew 27:38. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. 
These seven prophecies and their fulfillment represents the hundreds of prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus. This is probably one of the greatest proofs that Jesus is the Messiah. It is also one of the greatest evidences to the accuracy and trustworthiness of the scriptures. We find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight randomly chosen messianic prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's 100 with 17 zeros after it. In order to help us comprehend this staggering probability, Stoner illustrates it by supposing that we take that many silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover all of the state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, provided they wrote them in their own wisdom. Now these prophecies were either given by inspiration of God or the prophets just wrote them as they thought they should be. In such a case, the prophets had just one chance in 10 to the 17th power of having them come true in any man. But they all came true in Christ. This means that the fulfillment of these eight prophecies alone proves that God inspired the writing of those prophecies to a definiteness which lacks only one chance in 10 to the 17th power of being absolute. Stoner considers 48 prophecies and says, We find the chance that any one man fulfilled all 48 prophecies to be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Since there is only one chance in 100 to the 57th power, or that's 100 followed by 51 zeros, then this could be a strong indication as to the trustworthiness of scriptures and their reliability as being the true word of God. To the Christian believer, the words of Jesus himself about the scriptures should inspire confidence in their accuracy and trustworthiness. Concerning the law and the prophets, Jesus said in Matthew 5:17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Matthew 11:13, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Matthew 15:3, But he answered and said unto them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and thy mother, and he that curses father and mother, let him die the death. Concerning the prophecies of Isaiah, Matthew 15, 7, Jesus said, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Concerning other Old Testament scriptures, Jesus in Matthew 22, 29, answered and said unto them, You do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Luke 16, 17, he said, And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass 
than one tittle of the law to fail. Luke 16, 29, Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Luke 16, 31, And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Luke 24, 32, And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us? while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures. Luke twenty four forty five. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. John two twenty two. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. John five thirty nine. Jesus said, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And John 10.35, if he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, all these above words of Jesus represent the strong commitment which he had to the written scriptures. Jesus often quoted from many Old Testament books and never showed anything but a strong belief in their inspiration and infallibility. Then chapter 4. The testimony of great men whose character gives evidence of the trustworthiness of the scriptures. We have in our possession over a thousand testimonies of the greatest men since Christ outside of the clerical profession who have left witness of their unwavering faith in the Bible as the Word of God and in Christ as the Son of God. Thus, men who have been leaders of human thought through the centuries and who were not biased as preachers are accused of being, and who had no personal interest at stake, have simply been honest in acknowledging facts. When such men use their pen and voice to extol Christ and the Bible to be what they claim to be, it is time for skeptics and unbelievers to listen to facts without bias. These men have been kings, presidents, senators, congressmen, diplomats, philosophers, scientists, poets, authors, historians, artists, philanthropists, reformers, educators, lawyers, physicians, soldiers, journalists, financiers, governors, leaders of great movements, and men acknowledged to be representative of the old and new world. Carlyle said, No sadder proof can be given a man of his own littleness than disbelief in great men. Webster said, Great authorities are great arguments. We shall not take time or use space but for a very few testimonies to prove our point. In addition to these statements, consider the following remarks by other famous men. Thomas Jefferson. Above all, the pure light of revelation has had an influence on mankind and increased the blessings of society. It is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. That was George Washington. I have always said that a studious perusal of the sacred volume will make better citizens, better fathers, and better husbands. That was Thomas Jefferson. I hope that the Bible will be more and more studied by all ranks of people and expounded simply by the teachers, for the religion of the people can never be founded on moral philosophy. That was Alfred Tennyson. I have carefully examined the evidences of Christian religion 
and if I were sitting as a juror upon its authenticity, I would unhesitatingly give my verdict in its favor. I can prove its truth as clearly as any proposition ever submitted to the mind of man. That was Alexander Hamilton. All other books are of little importance in comparison with the Holy Scriptures, which are a revelation from God and are given as the only rule of faith and practice. Alexander Cruden. Here is my creed. I believe in one God, the creator of the universe, that, the, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshiped, that the most acceptable service we can render him is doing good to others, that the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another world, respecting his conduct in this, as to Jesus of Nazareth, I think his system of morals as he left them to us, the best the world has ever seen or is likely to see. Benjamin Franklin The first and almost the only book deserving of universal attention is the Bible. I speak as a man of the world, John Quincy Adams. It, the Bible, is the rock on which our republic rests, Andrew Jackson. It was for the love of the truths of this great and good book that our fathers abandoned their native shores for the wilderness. Zachary Taylor I am profitably engaged in reading the Bible. Take all of this book that you can by reason and the balance by faith, and you will live and die a better man. It is the best book which God has given to man. Abraham Lincoln I have known 95 of the world's greatest men in my time, and of these 87 were followers of the Bible. W.E. Gladstone Almost every man who has by his life work added to the sum of human achievement has based his life work largely upon the teachings of the Bible. Theodore Roosevelt to the influence of this book, we are indebted for the progress made in civilization, and to this we must look as our guide in the future. Ulysses S. Grant England has become great and happy by the knowledge of the true God through Jesus Christ. This is the secret of England's greatness. Queen Victoria The only spiritual light in the world comes through Jesus Christ and the inspired book. Without his presence and the teaching of the Bible, we would be enshrouded in moral darkness and despair. Nations without Christ, contrasted with those where Christ is accepted, reveal so marked a difference that no arguments are needed. Samuel Colgate We, the undersigned students of the natural sciences, desire to express our sincere regret that researchers into scientific truth are perverted by some of our own times into occasion for casting doubt upon the truth and authenticity of the Holy Scriptures. We conceive that it is impossible for the Word of God written in the book of nature and God's Word written in the Holy Scripture to contradict one another. Physical science is not complete, but is only in condition of progress signed by 800 scientists of Great Britain, recorded in the Bodleian Library, Oxford, England. The Bible is the book of faith, and a book of doctrine, and a book of morals, and a book of religion, of special revelation from God. But it is also a book which teaches man his responsibility, his own dignity, 
and his equality with his fellow man. Daniel Webster We could go on and on through the rank and file of great men and women of our generation, finding a host who would point to the scriptures as their guide for all matters of life and conduct. The contrast between those who believe the scriptures to be worthy of trust and those who mock them is seen in the quality of life experienced by each. Over time, those who trust in the scriptures and adhere to its precepts endure with lasting joy and peace, while those who choose to disbelieve find themselves cut off and without remedy. Conclusion When all of the evidence concerning the scriptures being the infallible and authoritative word of God is considered, and when honesty and humility prevail, we must conclude that the scriptures are reliable and trustworthy. As for me, the following passages from the Psalms says it best. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Psalm 1 Psalms 18.30 As of God, for his way is perfect, the word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those that trust in him. That concludes the reading of Ronnie D. Thomason's e-book on Can We Trust the Scriptures? A Irrefutable Proof that the Scriptures are Trustworthy. Read by Ronnie D. Thomason himself and you can find a copy of this at Amazon.com or Kindle Books. God bless you.